0: Hello, everybody. It's Dr. James Rudd from the Heart Podcast. Welcome to this edition. Uh, today, I'm joined by Dr. Andy De Silva from Brighton in the UK. And Andy is an expert on the assessment of elite athletes for underlying heart disease. And we talk at some length about his recent education in heart paper uh, published with uh, Professor Shanjay Sharma from St. George's Medical School. And also we discuss an article, again published in Heart, that compares the screening programmes for young competitive athletes in the US against those programmes in Europe. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Andy, many thanks for coming back for a second appearance on the podcast. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Andy, we discussed uh, in a recent podcast the management of people with cardiovascular conditions who wanted to exercise and um, you in the last few months have published with Professor Sanjay Sharma from St. George's Hospital a really excellent education in heart article entitled the management of young competitive athletes with cardiovascular conditions so I really wanted to get you back in to talk about uh, this article and also to comment on a, a companion piece really written by an American author uh, Dr. Lampert, uh, where the there is a significant discussion about the use of ECG screening uh, in young competitive athletes. So what I'm going to do, if it's okay with you, is confine this discussion to um, athletes who are competing at a high level, uh, aged under 35, and perhaps get you to discuss, first of all, the extent of uh, heart problems in these athletes. What's the sort of uh, extent of sudden death how common is it and what conditions might be underlying uh, sudden death in young competitive athletes
1: absolutely yes and it's it's an important question um, really the the quicker answer to give is to say that we can approximate this to being about one in 50,000 and the reason it's an approximation is that there are sort of various different methodologies in the way that um, studies have tried to go about answering this question and estimate it. So really, the longer answer is we don't know for sure. And the reason that studies haven't really been able to to address the question completely is is sort of due to what's being looked at. So the numerator is the number of events that are happening and the number of sudden cardiac deaths that are occurring. And the trouble is, as that's a relatively rare event, it's difficult to, to be able to capture all of those events with high precision. And one might argue that even studies that are only looking at sudden cardiac death are a little bit limited in that what you're really interested in is how many are also having sudden cardiac arrests as well, because they're likely to be related to the same conditions that you're trying to potentially pick up and screen, and you're trying to prevent those arrests as much as you're trying to prevent sudden cardiac deaths so already we you know we have issues in how we're trying to pick up uh, those cases and without having a sort of universal national registry where you know there, such a death would be compulsorily reported and and sort of documented with high fidelity instead where some uh, studies have had to rely on media reports or insurance claims uh, it's been you know quite appreciated that perhaps they they therefore been underestimating the scale of the problem because they just can't get you know an accurate numerator and so the other issue is in in terms of estimating the incidence is looking at the the population it's drawn from so the denominator how many athletes are there at risk in that population and again that's another thing that can generate quite a wide degree of variation um, and something that can be you know very imprecise so if we're taking you know just census data and, and making a, a sort of estimation of how many of these individuals will be of that age of interest and highly competing athletes and particularly when we start to combine things to you know, sort of, you know particular groups or particular sports then it becomes even more difficult to know that we we've got an accurate number for that denominator as well, so that that generates a problem, and that's why probably some of the sort of most methodologically rigorous studies um, are the ones that have led more consistently to that answer of uh, you know a, a an issue of about sort of one in uh, fifty thousand young individuals per year. But we do also appreciate that that's unlikely to be uniform. So it's, it's certainly not uniform across the genders. And we touched upon this a little bit last time. But again, in young competitive athletes, as well as in older athletes, there is a high male predominance in terms of sudden cardiac deaths. And in young competitive athletes, that's outweighed nine to one, male to female. Um, we even start seeing as well, if we look closely, that there are potentially differences in ethnicity, ethnicity. And um, in studies, particularly of basketball players, we see that black athletes have a three whole, threefold higher risk of sudden cardiac death. But in some ways, we should also be a little bit cautious in over-interpreting uh, su- these findings as well. When we start to look into you know, the, the sudden cardiac death incidences in different sports, again, because we're dealing with small numbers and we don't necessarily have a high degree of precision in our, in our denominator, in our numbers, Some things, some patterns, can be overcalled based on the the sort of reported biases of the data they're drawn from. So there really is a lot to learn and a lot to know more about in terms of the scope of the problem. Um, But certainly, just from you know watching television and following sports, it's definitely something that's in the public mind. As you know, seeing newspaper reports of high-profile individuals um, who. Uh, have either survived a sudden cardiac arrest uh, on the pitch, um, which unfortunately is rarer compared to, to to the sad truth that the majority um, who have underlying heart conditions and suffer a cardiac arrest during sport um, are, are deaths, and and you know, and not success stories uh, from the pitch.
0: So that's a that's really puts it into perspective. Thanks very much. Uh, and what kind of conditions are we talking about uh, that cause either a sudden cardiac arrest or a sudden cardiac death?
1: Exactly. Yeah. To to get to the second part of your question, again, we have various studies that uh, look at this problem, but again, various different answers that get drawn. So probably one of the more sort of seminal pieces of work came from the US, a a study published by Barry Marin uh, in Circulation in 2009. And it suggested that a large proportion of of, um, sudden cardiac deaths in young athletes was Attributable to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, um, but also sort of congenital abnormalities, including anomalous coronary arteries. And then within that population as well, there were important uh, contributions from valvular heart disease, from underlying arrhythmic, arrhythmogenic conditions like um, iron channelopathies, for example. Um, However, um, we have had other large studies, um, and a study by Domenico Corrado, published uh, in two thousand and three, um, demonstrated that actually, in the Italian experience, which has very high rigorous quality data, and um, because mandatory uh, participation screening has been in place for over thirty years, and all um, sort of uh, all athletes have registration, and then all uh, deaths, all get examined by the same sort of uh, expert group of histopathologists, certainly in some of the publications from the Veneto region of Italy. um, The high-quality data there suggests that uh, in the Italian population, ARVC, um, or arrhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy, in their population was the highest um, reported cause of sudden cardiac death. Um, anomalous coronary arteries was again uh, an important contributor to to the underlying pathology. And hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was was seen less in that population. One of the arguments made was perhaps that that is the result of the pre-participation screening program in that ninety five percent of individuals with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy uh, would manifest with abnormalities detectable on the ECG.
0: I see. So again, a real mixture of underlying conditions and perhaps some geographical variation as well. Exactly,
1: there, there may always be a a, a a component where, because these are underlying inherited cardiac conditions, that the genetic variability uh, across populations will have an influence as to as to the incidence and and relative contributions.
0: And just turning now to the to the thorny question of screening, as you mentioned, this is. Uh, mandatory in some parts of the world what do we do in the UK and then perhaps we could contrast that with what happens in the US in terms of the various society guidelines
1: yes absolutely I I probably should give a disclosure as it were in in that I uh, was formerly a clinical research fellow for cardiac risk in the young which is a charity involved in screening all across the UK and it's screening of young athletic individuals such as professional athletes but also um, young individuals in the community aged 14 to 35 um, again anywhere up and down the country. Um, So from that perspective I can tell you about the screening uh, offered uh, through charitable organisations and then it's also worth sort of elaborating a little bit more about um, what Sort of professional consensus statements in the UK exist uh, from certain bodies, and uh, and what's offered. But um, yeah, sort of on that point, um, what I what I'd also like to sort of present is in, is the debate, because clearly the data that exists and the the literature that is out there um, on um, pre-participation screening it is interpreted um, in different ways by individuals that come to different conclusions as to whether we are ready for it and it's something that should be offered to society or whether we're not yet ready. And because those those arguments are are there on both sides, I think it's is really very helpful to try and present, you know, the, the, the balanced argument, as it were. Uh, although ultimately, you know, as I say, I sort of mentioned my disclosures because ultimately I've performed a lot of screening and then it's something that, that I, I feel that we are ready for and, and should be doing. So in the UK, what we practice is a model very similar to the Italian model. And that's, you know, sort of through cardiac risk in the young and, and other screening populations in the UK. Um, that includes an ECG um, but we um, uh, we also sort of have uh, the physical examination that comes in part of the screening assessment. And um, the bodies in the UK that support this strategy uh, in, include the Football Association, the Lawn Tennis Association, um, and uh, and across Europe, the uh, European Society of Cardiology and the International Olympic Screening Committee would all advocate uh, a history examination and including ECG, uh, pre-participation screening evaluation. Uh, But in the UK, in fact, it's certainly not mandatory. It's more, you know, sort of voluntary and opt-in. Organisations like the British Heart Foundation and the National Screening Committee they sort of take a view that actually um, we are pro- we may not yet be in a position where we know that screening is an effective strategy and that it's cost effective um, to deliver at this stage. And therefore, their recommendation uh, is, is not in favor of screening. However, um, the, where the funding, for example, might come for elite athletes from sporting organisations like the Football Association or like the International Olympic Screening Committee, uh, they take the view that they feel that the evidence is there to um, to, to outroll uh, pre-participation screening, including an ECG, provided it's done by adequately trained uh, individuals who are able to, to do it in a way that has a low false positive rate. So in the UK, uh, the majority of screening that is done is done through uh, charitable organisations or it's organised and paid for by professional sporting organisations. And in the model that cardiac risk in the young have, what will happen is that um, experienced individuals uh, will uh, host and and attend a, a screening event where there will be, for example, a clinical research fellow trained in the interpretation of ECGs who will conduct every um, sort of consultation. uh, That will include a a sort of pro pro forma um, history taking tool, uh, which um, subjects will complete. And it will provide any points in the history regarding symptoms of interest that could indicate cardiovascular disease, such as chest pain or syncope It will also indicate um, whether there's any family or question whether there's any family history that might be either um, indicative of an underlying um, inherited heart disease or suspicious um, for perhaps a sudden cardiac death prematurely in the in the family. Um, Then, as well as that, it will include the 12 lead ECG, uh, which will then be interpreted by the physician. And then that sort of concludes the screening. And if any abnormalities are detected, then recommendations are made as to what further actions, referrals or investigations would be appropriate.
0: And I know you go into that um, in in some detail in your own article, which I'll put links uh, in the show notes in terms of what you might recommend to people who do have abnormalities, either on history, exam or ECG. Uh, What happens in the US then, Andy? Is it different there?
1: It is, yeah, so the um the pre-participation screening in the u s pretty much um rose almost sort of outside the uh, influence or, or you know beginnings of cardiologists. And so for that reason, it's it, it began with a sort of fourteen point um, elements to it, um ten in terms of crucial points in taking the history and four in terms of physical examination. And uh, what is important to bear in mind that this mostly was being conducted by sort of primary care physicians or sports medicine physicians and sometimes uh, um, nurse specialists or physicians' associates, or even chiropractors. So in the way that the screening of young athletes has been sort of set up and its infrastructure, and also you have to consider the sort of size and the number of clubs and the scale of America and how uh, you know how much work needs to be delivered for all young individuals to be screened. Um, it did have at its, uh, you know, it, it began from history and physical examination. And where some of the data has come in to say, well, In terms of looking for conditions like cardiomyopathies and like arrhythmogenic conditions, then the ECG is a valuable and sensitive tool to add into that model. And there has quite naturally um, and understandably been resistance that, well, the current model of how history and physical examination exists in the U.S. means that to... Try and scale it feasibly, and to include the costs associated and the training of individuals to be able to interpret ECGs with a low false positive rate, um, and to be able to add that in to to the pre-participation screening system as it is currently is just not feasible. Um, some make the argument that you know that some studies suggest that perhaps up to 50% of individuals um, prior to having a sudden cardiac arrest or sudden cardiac death uh, may experience symptoms. So that's where perhaps the history um, can be a a tool in in picking these up. Uh, Of course, that does leave 50% that don't have any personal history or family history or or any clues uh, that are going to get you any closer to diagnosing an, an underlying cardiac vulnerability or inherited Uh, cardiac condition, as it were. And some studies, uh, including um, studies undertaken at St. George's Hospital, where I previously worked, actually put the figure of asymptomatic individuals uh, at 80%. So if 80% of people suffering a sudden cardiac arrest don't experience any prior preceding symptoms, it makes using history as as a primary tool of detecting pathology relatively insensitive. And then when you look at the addition of physical examination, um, again, part of that will have a quality control in terms of it will be astute people who are quite experienced who are able to pick up important clinical problems, particularly things like valvular heart disease or um, clinical features of Marfan syndrome, which are going to be relevant to try and detect um, you know, potential problems in the athlete. But the majority of the time, the physical examination really sort of will add the, a diagnosis of hypertension, for example, or perhaps valvular heart disease. Um, and again, compared to the conditions, or when we look at the studies that look at the etiologies, the underlying conditions responsible for sudden cardiac death in young athletes, hypertension and valvular heart disease really don't feature in the you know the the, the top five, as it were, or even the sort of, sort of most important condition. So that's why most um, sort of screening in Europe and screening policies in the UK. Um, edge towards inclusion of the ECG with the fact that looking for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, arrhythmogenic ventricular cardiomyopathy, ventricular pre-excitation, channelopathies, long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome, uh, these are are all pathologies of interest. And the ECG adds a tremendous amount of sensitivity in order to be able to pick those up, whereas history and physical examination alone will miss the vast majority of, of those.
0: I mean, it's a really fascinating debate I guess on both sides of the Atlantic do you, do you see the the two sides coming closer together and eventual adoption um, of the ECG in the US or is this something that uh, uh, the, the very entrenched camps are still far away on
1: no I, I do see things moving closer together it's it's interesting because you know a bit like a, a sort of a Facebook following or Twitter feed you always seem to you know sort of bump into or have knowledge of people working who are of a similar mindset to you so it may be you know it may just be a sort of false perception that the more people i meet at conferences uh, from the us or from canada again as you know seem to be very you know in favor of adopting and bringing in the ecg and and sort of the the quality assurance standards Um, to the U.S. model. But as I say, it may be just because they're the people I rub shoulders with, as it were. It may not be a true reflection of how the the majority of tastemakers feel over at the U.S. But having said that, I would say that a lot of presentations I've been to, a lot of articles I've read have been trying to bridge that gap, uh, trying to, first of all, learn a little bit better that those um, original articles looking at the breakdown of sudden cardiac death um, and, and what the causes are. That is an epidemiology that also seems to be changing, and there are now more contemporary reports suggesting that there's a big proportion that are um, unexplained, that there are autopsies performed, uh, and the autopsies show no pathology, and there doesn't appear to be you know a clear answer for why that young athlete has died suddenly. And this sort of also galvanises the field to continue research together on both sides of the Atlantic to try and understand, well, does that mean that there are a significant proportion of people who aren't going to be detected by screening and are still going to be at risk of sudden death? Or does it perhaps mean that there are a higher proportion of channelopathies that we just didn't have the opportunity to detect in life? So. That, again, starts to sort of raise arguments again as to are we ready for screening. But it brings people together to say, well, do we understand the problem well enough and should we be working closer to the problem? Again, another big step that kind of brought the the Europeans and, and the U.S. a little bit closer together was the publication in 2017 of the sort of international consensus um, guidelines for interpretation of the ECG in athletes. So again, including um, you know those advocates who were for I- introducing the ECG and its uh, its cautious interpretation in terms of trying to avoid as many false positives as possible. That was again a big step forward in in sort of you know trying to encourage that you know if we're using the ECG properly as an effective tool and we're making sure that we're not including uh, lots of findings that don't seem to be specific for pathology, then reducing the false positive rate from where it existed at about 7% to less than 3% really then does you know make a stronger argument that this can be a, a cost-effective uh, and more sensitive addition to screening without there being a compromise of a lot of individuals um, introduced to psychological harm unnecessarily or with, you know, an overwhelming burden of additional investigations brought into the healthcare system. So I, I do see things coming together. I do see that there is more of a, a, a sort of breaking stance from the U.S., with um, hoping you know considering more and more the adoption of ECG and their screening policies and as their technologies improve as well so as there is quite a lot of um, automated interpretation that can make uh, the job potentially easier for the individual screening or if that individual screening um, really has uh, a network in which that you know through um, rather than you know having to arrange lots of meetings or bringing uh, expert individuals to a screening. Being able to select, you know, certain ECGs or being able to discuss certain ECGs that the automated system has flagged up um, may, again, sort of reduce that burden of false positives without everyone sort of, you know, having to always be at every screening and, and everything being looked at. So I think, you know, technology also has a role in being able to make that learning curve and that transition to adopt the most contemporary, you um, recommendations for ECG interpretation to individuals who otherwise you know would feel uncomfortable in introducing that into their their sort of screening practice so I think I think there is a lot of scope um for the the two communities to come together and I think it will be more the adoption of ECGs but as I say you know it is it's an evolving field with more work and understanding being contributed and every day it's possible that we you know we may get more Um, good high quality um, methodologically rigorous studies telling us well perhaps you know perhaps screening may not in its current form be as good as we hope it is or as good as we think it is and it behoves us to reflect on our practices and think well how do we make things better so reducing the false positives rates is a very good example of that looking through well what have been our positive findings how often has it resulted in the diseases we're looking for and what can be um, sort of relabeled as a potentially normal variant in an athlete, for example, without us compromising the sensitivity of the tool but making it more specific. So I think there there is definitely a lot of movement in this field um, in improving things and trying to achieve that objective of identifying young individuals at risk, being able to appropriately counsel them as to what what, um, sort of underlying cardiac fault they may be bringing onto the sports pitch with them and what potentially that might mean in terms of their risk. And that's another area that's very difficult to quantify. So if, if we make a diagnosis of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or if we make a diagnosis of um, uh, long QT syndrome, uh, again, that risk, those tools of risk stratification within those diagnoses of inherited heart disease, they're also areas that when they improve, and when we're better able to decide, you know, who needs what treatment, or exactly how much risk does physical activity, or how much physical activity, and um, puts an individual at risk, we'll be better able to look after our patients.
0: Brilliant. And there's a, as I say, there's a very nice table in your, uh, in your paper which goes into that in some detail in terms of recommendations, uh, very specific recommendations for each condition. Uh, depending on the kind of exercise the, the person is doing. So I want to draw things to a close there, Andy. Thank you very much for your time and your insights. And as I say, I'll put links to both papers into the show notes so people can go away and uh, read them themselves. Fantastic. Thank you very much.